Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2. Before I read verses 6 through 9, let me pray one more time. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together in this place Sunday by Sunday. We thank you for the encouragement that's found in being in the company of your people after um, days and days of feeling like um, we're, we're little dimly burning wicks in a lost and dying world. We praise you and magnify you for the Great blessing of getting to come here and be reminded that, oh yeah, we're not the only ones that believe these things. We thank you for your provision and your protection for each of us, for our families, for your care over every moment of our lives. We thank you for the victory that we know is coming experientially that we have already in the gospel spiritually. We pray that this morning as we look into your word, even though it's in the Old Testament and even though it's uh, narrative and, and even though it may seem disconnected from our reality here in Springfield, um, we ask that you would help us to understand that you really, really do love us and you really, really are interested in us. And you really, really do promise that you're going to look after us and take care of all that we need so that we might have life eternally. And finally, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us be with the thoughts in our minds and the inclinations of our hearts and be with my mouth this morning so that what we do here is true and brings glory to you. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Haggai chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Three weeks ago, when we started Haggai, we we noticed basically three things. Number one, we looked at the historical context and understood that what's happening here is the people who had been exiled into Babylonian captivity had now, with the the overthrow of the Babylonians by the Persians, the the, the Jews had been sent back to Judah, to Jerusalem, to begin a rebuilding work on the temple and on the city. Um, Shortly after that work began, a threat emerged in the form of a king who replaced Cyrus And uh, I argued a little bit that I don't think it was Artaxerxes, even though that's the name that the Bible uses. I think it's a little bit of a translation misnomer because Artaxerxes didn't come until uh, 480-something B.C. and we're still in like 
560, 550. So some other king takes over in Persia and the enemies of the work going on in Jerusalem to the north send word to this king in Persia and say, if you let these Jews build this temple, they're going to begin to rebel. And so the, the then king in Persia writes back and says, stop the work, however you have to do it, even if by force. So the work which had begun on the temple comes abruptly to an end. I think I said something along the lines of, it's not unreasonable for us to be providentially hindered from even the gospel work from time to time. I don't know what all God is doing when he hinders the gospel work, but I know historically there have been seasons where he has. The problem that we have, and the reason that the message of Haggai exists, is because after the threat had passed and there was no reason to stop the work anymore, it had simply never restarted, re-restarted. So um, Haggai comes out of kind of nowhere, and he begins to preach these messages to the people. The application that I made was, if we compare our situation here at Springfield to the situation of the Jews in Jerusalem in 525, 526 BC, there's some, there's some, without spiritualizing the text, there's some application that we can make. We could say of Springfield that a work started here 10 years ago and it has gone on in fits and starts. It's, there have been people that have come and gone. There have been pastors that have come and gone. And what happens when you're in a situation where things kind of almost start and keep almost starting is you begin to get just start weary, like you're over it. You don't want to start anymore. You're done starting. And so there are those who have been here for a long time who would say maybe it's not yet time to start again in Springfield, just like there were those in, in Judah who said it's not yet time to restart the work of building the temple. Um, I get it. Many of us are beat up and wore out. Um, We would like to take some time and put some resources and energy into something else. And Haggai, the response to that attitude from God is this. He tells the people, you know what, before you decide what the times are, why don't you consider your own ways? So we ask the questions, how's your marriage? How's your home life? How are your finances? How's your walk with God? And the way to figure out your walk with God, in one sense, is to look at the evidences in your life that you're walking with God. Is your life a reflection of the fruits of the Spirit given in Galatians 5, or is it more of a reflection of your own personal preferences? So you consider your ways before you evaluate the times. Then we considered our ways as it applies to church life. So the three things, just so that we're clear. If you've been trying to take notes for three weeks and you're like, I still don't know what the three things are because he never (laughs) says them because he doesn't look at his notes. First, the historical context. Second, consider your ways individually before you try to know the times in in the entire world. And then third, we need to consider our ways as it pertains to church life. In as much as you can separate your own ways from your ways at church, If you can make your walk at church distinct from your personal walk, here are the questions that I would ask. Have we, in the context of church, sown much and harvested relatively little? Have we invested in ministries that we feel like, from a human perspective, have have amounted to dust and ashes? Have we felt unappreciated, unsupported, helpless, and burned out by church? And everybody stayed quiet because we would never publicly admit that we feel that way. (laughs) 
But in our own hearts and in our own minds, we might mutter to ourselves, it's not yet time. And we don't use that language. We would never say that out loud. But what it means is any excuse to stay home will suffice. Any excuse not to be fully invested in this work will be enough. And, and, and listen, I don't mean to conflate the idea that you would be better suited in a different body of Christ with you being unwilling to pursue the edification of the church, all right? So even though she's not here, I'll talk about her behind her back. Joelle was with us when we started, and I, you know, I put my arm around her shoulder, and I said, look around. There's not a lot of eligible 27-year-old men here. You might be better off somewhere else, and Joelle reached that conclusion, and so she's somewhere else, and we love her, and we're praying for her that she'll find a husband and bring him and his whole family back, right? <laughs> so anyway, I'm not trying to say that if you're not with us here, like there's something wrong with you. If you decide that this isn't for you, that there's something wrong with you, but if you decide that this is for you and the work that we're going to be engaged in isn't, then there's something wrong with you. Then you need to make an adjustment. So God says, well, listen, you eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. Because in many respects, what we do as Christians when we're a little bit frustrated is we begin to invest in things that don't have that much value or meaning. God has put in every Christian an unquenchable desire to be vitally engaged in the work of expanding the kingdom of God. And he gives with that a corresponding energy and talent and giftedness. When we take the energy and the talents and the gifts and pour them into other things that don't really satisfy, we even lose the excitement and joy of those things. So I said, even your hobbies might begin to be sort of meaningless to you because you can't fill up a spiritual desire with a worldly thing. It just doesn't work. God is after our satisfaction, and an essential part of that satisfaction is found in doing the Great Commission. Right? So what are we doing? Well, we're laying the foundation to be a church in Springfield, Nebraska. So we're trying to deal with all of the potential pitfalls ahead of time, which is impossible, but we're, we're going to make the effort by looking at Haggai. The critical piece that I said we need to begin with, if we're going to plant a church in Springfield, which I, there's already one here, I get it. Understand my heart. I'm saying like we're going to kind of reboot, right? Maybe replant is the word I should use. But the critical piece that we need is this. If you have a spirit which is disillusioned, a heart that's broken, a mindset that has become miserly, and a mouth that says it's not yet time, what you need to do is consider your ways, consider what might need to change, and lay those things at the feet of God. And ask him to help you suss out what your priorities should be. Two weeks ago, oh, I can't tell how long I've been, well, whatever. Two weeks ago, we looked at the second half of chapter one and saw that in our context, since we don't believe that the temple sacrificial system is still standing, while we do believe in building the church of God, we're not talking first and foremost about a physical building. What we're talking about is, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, building up with living stones the body of Christ. That's the primary mission of the church. So if we're not after a physical building, we have to be comprised then of people who've come to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Right? 
So I, leaning heavily on verbiage that I stole from Mike Crawford in Baltimore, said we need to be about the business of doing four things. Number one, we have to draw to Jesus. Individually and then corporately, we must be trying to pursue Christ, which means we're constantly turning from the things of the world, from the lusts of the heart, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, towards an embrace, a full embrace of Jesus Christ for ourselves individually. All of us have to be doing that. I gotta quit smoking. (laughs) Just joking. Um, Second, we then have to develop in community, which means we're gonna spur one another on in the pursuit of Jesus Christ and in love and good deeds. This community has to be cultivating an open-heartedness with one another, a care for one another, a watching over one another, so that this is a family, right? We develop this community from the point where there's three or four different cliques of people that know each other to the point where this is one body with one shepherd, not me. The shepherd is Jesus, right? Third, we will eventually deploy to the community. So we practice being hospitable, loving one another, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, uh, greeting each other with a hug here where it's safe. And then when we deploy to the culture, we're a little bit better at inviting people to church, at saying hello when somebody shows up to visit, at, at Entering in with the lost and dying world without becoming part of the lost and dying world. We'll we'll deploy to the culture. We won't be um, marinated in it and, and, and absorbed by it, but we will be in it. And then fourth, I said, in so doing, we'll display the glory of God. So those are the Ds, right? Draw to Jesus, develop in community, deploy to culture, display the glory of God. Drawing to Jesus is the instinct of every believer. So that's the easy one. Right? If you're a Christian, you want to draw to Jesus. You almost don't have to be told to draw to Jesus. That's, I mean, duh. Of course you're drawing to Jesus. The, the pitfall here is there are always people at church every Sunday who are not drawing to Jesus because they don't know him. And my concern is you can't really start a church full of unbelievers. It doesn't work. Um, a failure to draw to Jesus with a fairly high degree of consistency and discipline will lead to an unhealthy preoccupation with yourself. Amen? Like even Christians have seasons where we're a little too into us and we have to repent and turn and redeem the time as best we can. Now, an unbeliever in the midst of the congregation of God is not capable of repenting, turning, and, and you know, working more diligently at drawing to Jesus because they don't know him. So what happens is when you begin to constitute a church and you take the Unitarian universal approach and just say, everybody's welcome and everybody can serve and everybody can teach and everybody can participate in Lord's Supper is you, you build the church with dead stones that don't work. And a church built with corpses isn't functional. So they're not going to develop in community because you've got living people and you've got dead people. So what, what am I suggesting? That we need to root out all the people that don't know Jesus and kick them out? No, no, no. I'm suggesting that there has to be some kind of gate for membership. And the gate is you got to know Christ. Amen. You, you must know him. 
If we embrace everybody for membership, what we'll have is a church that's not developing in community. And the way you know that is you'll see high turnover, lazy preaching, a distinct lack of prayer, and generally a small handful of people who are doing all the work. We don't want that. We can't afford that. We don't have room for that. Right? So I'm chastising you. I'm not saying let's target the lost for destruction. I'm saying you had better make sure, so far as you're able, that you are working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, Shouldn't have watered away from my notes. Last week, we began chapter 2. And we saw that not quite four weeks went by between when the people repented and started to do the work again. Not quite four weeks later, and deep, profound discouragement sets in. Discouragement comes from a multitude of places because life in a sin-fallen world is so often tragic. Amen? Amen. We're hurting for one reason or another almost all the time on some level. It's not fun down here. It can be, but generally speaking, if we're not actively screwing something up, someone else is... And it makes life hurt. So discouragement rises, it ebbs, it comes, and it often has its roots. And the fact that whatever we thought was coming together, whatever we thought was going to happen, doesn't look the way we hoped it would. Doesn't turn out the way we were hoping it would. And the way that I illustrated this last week was I said when you're six, and you're building the fort out of blankets and cushions, you get to that last step, which is to you know, put the roof on the entryway and the blanket doesn't quite reach or the tape won't stick to the wall. Or like when you're little, there's little disappointments. When you're 16, you're, not, you know, you're, 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 you're disappointed with how your relationships turn out, I think, for the most part, when you're 16. When you're 26, it's the fort you're trying to build with drywall and two-by-fours. Things don't turn out right. When you're 36, maybe the marriage isn't firing on all cylinders. When you're 46, maybe the finances aren't what you hoped they, were, they would be. When you're 56, you're starting to fear death. When you're 66, you're hoping for it. But your body's, <laughs> your body's not working the way that you want it to. And when you're 76, you've got all this experience and all this wisdom looking back on a generation of idiots who if you only had their energy you could make so much better use of it than them. So there's just disappointment in every season of life. It's a little bit discouraging. So I asked us to face honestly our emotional condition. Of course we're beat up. Of course we have a hard time gathering the enthusiasm to be fully engaged in this process half the time when I'm driving to church. I'll be honest. I'm thinking about work tomorrow. I know, I get it. We all get it, right? There's things always like looming on the horizon that we've got to deal with. When we get here, what greets us is a ramshackle little building with a parking lot that looks like it's out of Mad Max. (laughs) I'm not trying to be unkind. It just, that's what, like you come over that hill, it's like, wow. I love it. It's precious to me, but I get what it looks like. A bar in Springfield seems like an odd place to try to plant a church. The approach is a little bit discouraging. 
Plus, we come in here stumbling Sunday by Sunday with all of our personal discouragements that we've dealt with throughout the week. Work, family, finances, friendships, school, physical health. There are so many opportunities, opportunities for us to be mentally broken down, right? So if you're one of these people who's just mentally strong and you don't struggle a lot with self-doubt and all of the uh, fears and frustrations that accompany living in a sin-fallen world because you just laid at the feet of Jesus and soldier on, God bless you. The rest of us who are more easily discouraged, need to hear the first word of encouragement that God offers to the people in Haggai, and that is this. Whatever you're going through, listen, I'm with you. Amen. God is with you. He does not lead off by fixing the situation. He leads off by fixing our focus. Why do you drive to church thinking about work tomorrow? Why do you drive to church thinking about whatever tragedy has befallen you? Who is with you? What are you staring at? What are you preoccupied with? Your circumstances, the scary things, the heartbreaking things about life, the painful things? Hold on. Who is with you? I wish I could say I have this master plan going all the way back to September, and that's why I've preached the sermons that I've preached up to this point. Not so. I'm actually pretty lazy, and I'm just like, I'll preach this this Sunday. But we preached Psalm 23 the last Sunday in December and the first Sunday in January. You guys remember that, some of you? Right? And what we said was, the Lord is my shepherd means that he is between me and whatever I'm facing. Because he's leading me, right? So whatever, wherever I'm going, Jesus is there between me and whatever I'm facing. Then we said, we, we're, we're walking through the valley of the shadow